Thank you so much for listening to us each and every week. We're so grateful that you do. Uh, first off, I want to say Happy New Year. As always, check us out on Facebook at Southern Hills United Methodist Church or visit our website at www.shumcokc.org. Thank you. Wherever and whenever you are, I want to wish you a Happy New Year. and I'm glad that you're here to worship with us, whether you're on campus or online. Um, got a couple of things I want to share with you before we get started because there are some things that are coming up that I think you're definitely not going to want to miss. Make sure that's on. Okay. Um, to begin with, as we start off the new year, we've got a couple of things coming that I'm, uh, I'm excited about, and I want to make sure uh, that you have these on your calendar so that you can be a part of this if it's something that's interesting to you. First one is that on January the the 16th, now that's a Sunday, we're going to have our first meeting of the members of 2022. Um, That'll be right after the 1030 worship service. We'll plan, as of right now, uh, we're planning on eating together, uh, just seated at the tables here, and then we'll have a meeting of the members, which, which will be similar in scope to what you experienced in October. So if you'd like to be a part of that, please come and join us. I would like to have you there, because prior to that meeting, I'm also going to be meeting with our, uh, our new executive team. We had about, about 60% or so of the executive team rotated off this year, and we have a new team coming on, or about that much of the team is new, and then some members who've been serving for a while. So I'm going to meet with that newly formed team ahead of that, and we're going to talk about a few goals and priorities, not just for 2022, uh, but for the, the 10 years that are to come. One of the things that I'm going to be sharing with the executive team and talking with them about is my hope over the course of the next uh, 10 years to lead Southern Hills in a very particular direction. People have been asking me a lot about what what kind of church I think we should be or what kind of future I think we should be pursuing, uh, the direction that I, I, I believe God is leading us forward and the vision that we need to be casting as a congregation. So I'm going to share some of that first with the executive team when we meet together, and then in the membership meeting, I'm going to talk with you um, about my hope to be able to lead us that direction over the course of the next 10 years. Part of that is going to involve uh, taking a look at who we are and where we are with uh, an understanding that we are a, a church that is in many ways launching anew. And I don't mean that just as a a small C church. If you've been around uh, the church world for a while, that grew up as a Christian, then you know that we tend to write things strangely. We have our own language for some things. One of those is that when we write church with a small C, we're usually referring to our church. And when we write church with a big C, we're usually referring to the worldwide church, like the whole body of Christ. And so I'm talking about that in two ways, the big C church and the little C church. I think that Christianity, particularly as we move beyond the changes that were um, caused to speed up a bit by the pandemic, we're looking at a worldwide body of Christ that's going to be looking for ways to reinvent and innovate in new ways because we're going to need to relaunch that. And so I want to see uh, Southern Hills that way too. Part of that is going to involve us finding new ways, even as we strengthen the things we currently do, we're going to find new ways to be relevant to the community that we're in, that we're a part of, to reach out to that community, and to invite people in that community to be a part of what we're doing here. So one of the things, and part of the reason I'm telling you that this morning, is so you can be there for the membership meeting where I'm going to share some of that in greater detail after I've had a chance to talk with the executive team and we flesh some of that out together. Um, But I've already got something scheduled that is going to be along those lines. 
um, the, the, there were changes that were already coming to the church. You're going to hear me talk a lot about this. So if you're interested uh, in the reconstruction of Christianity, the reconstitution of the church, what does the church look like according to the changes that have come as the pandemic has wrought change all throughout the globe, I'm going to be talking about that in the membership meeting. But there were some changes already coming. And, and the pandemic, as much as it uh, changed so much of life for all of us in so many ways, sped up some of those changes that the church was already having to look at navigating. There were already things that were changing for us. We've been watching, for instance, as on-campus attendance in our churches, Big C Church around the world, has declined fairly steadily in most countries, certainly in the United States, since the late 1960s. That's a long time, right? I'm going to tell you this morning a story of a movie that came out in 1995. That is 27 years ago. Just wrap your mind around that for a minute. The 1960s, that was a minute ago. We've been watching a steady decline of on-campus attendance in churches of varying denominations since the 1960s. Even the last holdout, the Southern Baptist Convention, was the only mainline church that was not experiencing major decline in the U.S. until about eight years ago. They started to experience the same kind of decline in the United States of America. We already knew those changes were coming, but the pandemic sped up some of those changes that we were already looking at having to deal with. So the question for the Big C Church and the question for Southern Hills is, who are we going to be as we move forward? How do we maintain the best parts of who we've been and also look at stepping out into what we're going to become? That's what I want to share with you in that meeting. So put that on your calendar. I'd love to have you there because I want your feedback uh, and I want your participation as we step into what that's going to look like for us. And for me, that involves leading us to a place where we're going to be putting some resources into reaching out to the community that is around us, even as we reach out to the entire world. So one of those things we have in mind that we're going to be doing, and I want you to put this on your calendar too, is that on January the 31st, I believe at 6 o'clock p.m., we're going to host a, a live streamed event. It's not going to be an on-campus event at all. It's just going to be an online event where um, I'm going to have a, a sit-down dialogue, kind of a Q&A about the reconstruction of Christianity. So I've had a chance to talk recently to one of our Sunday school classes about some of the questions they've had as they've been um, reading the scriptures and trying to understand um, how some of what they were taught when they were younger, uh, they're discovering doesn't always match up with what Jesus taught, which can be a difficult thing to reconcile. And so as the deconstruction of theology has been a major worldwide Christian theme over the last two years, so is the reconstruction of that. We've talked about how sometimes you need to deconstruct what you believe if, what you, if you discover that what you believe is not matching up with what Christ has taught so that you can build something new on the foundation of what was there before. And so we're going to talk some about that. I'm going to have this event. Um, Megan is going to sit here with me and be a co-host. We're going to bring a couple of chairs up here on stage. We're going to live stream the whole thing. Um, she's going to ask me a series of questions about some of those things you've probably thought about. Um, why is it that I, I thought I was taught to believe this, but when I read the scriptures, I'm not sure that what I was taught that I was supposed to believe actually matches up with what Christ says. I'm going to tell you uh, not only what some of those major topics are, where Christians are, are kind of trying to figure that out, but also what the most likely reasons are that you're experiencing some of that and where we go as we begin to reconstruct our theology based upon the teachings of Jesus Christ. I think it's going to be a good time. I also think it's going to be a great opportunity to share something of our church with somebody else in a way that invites them to participate in a, in a, in a manner that I think for them will be very safe. 
So I'm going to give you the tools that you need to be able to share that and share the information about it with people that you think might be interested in being a part of what Christ is doing here at Southern Hills. So we've got a lot to talk about. I'm excited about those things, and I'm excited about stepping into that time together with you. Um, that's going to be January the 16th for the members meeting and January the 31st for the live stream event. Um, put those on your calendar and let other people know about them and let other people know about what God is doing here. Today, as we step into the new year, I want to talk with you a little bit about something that I think is often overlooked. We talk an awful lot here about change, about taking a look at our own lives and determining not only who we are and who we've been, but who God is calling us to be and who God is helping us to become. Why? Because I think that not only is change in the life of every person very possible, not only do I think that change in the life of any organization is very possible, there are so many people who say things like, nobody ever really changes, right? Nobody can, you can't really change. You're, the, the way that you're going to be is set by circumstances beyond your control once you've lived a certain way for a certain amount of time and nobody ever really changes. I don't believe that at all. I think that change is very possible for individuals and for organizations. I also think it is necessary if you're going to step into a life and that more abundantly so. That's what Christ said that Christ came to do, to help us experience life and that more abundantly so. If I'm going to experience a life that is more abundant than the life that I'm living right now, as I live into the example and the love of Jesus Christ, which is what we talk about, that love is naturally going to transform me from the inside out. Not only do I think it's possible, I think the scriptures say that it's necessary. But I also think that even while we talk about change, it's important to bear in mind, and you've heard me say something to this effect before, that it's okay to not yet be what you are becoming. Is God transforming me in love? Yes. Can I make some changes that are going to help me to, to live a, a life more abundantly, a life that is uh, more in tune with the love of God and the example of Jesus Christ? Absolutely yes. Does God know that? Yes. Does God want that for you and for me? Absolutely yes. But does God also love me as who I am, where I am right now, without expecting me to be what I am not yet become? Absolutely. So today, we're going to take a minute and talk a little bit about the symphony. God is writing with your life. Before we do so, the scriptures are holy, and before we consider them, we should pray. Let's do that together. God, we are grateful for the opportunity to be the people that you're calling us to be and to step into the, the people that you are calling us to become. We're grateful that you love us where we are and that you love us enough to help us to walk from where we are and into the life that can be more abundantly lived as your love transforms us more so from the inside out. And so today, as we seek to learn a little bit more about who you are and who you're calling us to be, we pray, God, that wherever and whenever we are, you would open our hearts, that you would open our ears, that we might feel your presence, that we might hear your voice, helping us to understand what the next step is for us, even if the next step is understanding how much you love us in this one. And open our minds to a dialogue with you so that together 
we can begin to process and learn and grow, even as we better understand what it means to be people who know you. This we ask in your name. Amen. 27 years ago, 1995, MGM released a movie called Mr. Holland's Opus, starring Richard Dreyfuss. Now, I happen to think that that era of movies was a great era in general. There's a lot of good eras of movies, I'm sure about that. I, I enjoy, movies are something, a uh, passion that Kate and I have long shared in common. In fact, for our anniversary, which incidentally was this past Tuesday, um, for many, many years now, we have participated in a movie marathon. We'll both take that day off from work, if it's at all possible to do it, and we'll spend that day watching two or three movies. We started this about 15 years ago. We had no money to spend on our anniversary, and the theater that was near our home at the time had a special going on where we could get tickets for super cheap. And so we found two or three movies we wanted to watch. We spent our money on the tickets, and we went all day. We had so much fun that it's become an annual tradition for us that on our anniversary, we do this every year. And over time, as the girls have been with us or moved away and come back, they joined us. So Megan was with us this year. She's been with us the last several years. We had a great time watching some great movies this week. I think there have been a lot of good eras of movies, but I think the mid-90s was a great one. This is the era of movies like uh, Braveheart. Like, uh, if, I don't remember the, the exact date that it came out, but I remember when Jurassic Park came out, it was a, one of the first major uh, attempts at incorporating CGI into filmography, and everybody was amazed at how they could see, see these life like dinosaurs in film in a way that just looked so real it blew all of our minds. The movie Twister was the same way. That was actually the first movie that I ever owned on DVD and I was so excited about how clear it was. That's a great era of movies. One of them was Mr. Holland's Opus. Mr. Holland's Opus is a fantastic movie and Richard Dreyfuss does a wonderful job of playing the lead character. It tells the story of a man who had wanted to spend his life as a musician. He had trained as a musician. He had gone off to try starting a career in music with the ultimate goal of writing what he termed the Great American Symphony. He wanted to write a symphony that was uniquely American, that encapsulated what it meant to live in the United States of America at that time, obviously from his perspective, but he wanted to get that uh, codified into a symphony. His major goal was to do that, but the movie picks up right at the point where he's failed in that career path. And so he falls back on the other thing he was trained to do. He went to college to learn to be a teacher in case his career as a musician didn't work out. Well, by the time the movie picks up, at the very start of the movie, that's happened, and he's already um, taken a job as a high school music teacher. He's about to start day one. So he walks in already a little bit depressed and dejected that he's had to pull back from his hopeful career in music and take up his fallback option, but thinking that his fallback option was, was uh, planned well to give him the time that he would need to still pursue his goals in music. He thought, you know, if I could be a teacher, uh, teachers have the summer off, right? And they get off uh, early in the afternoon. He said, I'm going to have plenty of time to write my symphony uh, if, I, if I take this job category, right? If I go into being a music teacher. And he finds out a couple of things. One of them is that it's going to take a lot more time than he had anticipated, and that teachers don't make very much money at all. 
not nearly the amount of money, in my humble opinion, that they should be making. And so he needs more money. So one of the things he does to, to um, get more money is start teaching driver's education during the summer months. So instead of spending his summer months writing his great American symphony, he starts spending his summer months uh, teaching kids how to drive. I, I, the, the, the movie's great because it depicts story after story after story of all the crazy things that happen when he's trying to teach teenagers how to drive. Do you remember what it was like for you to learn how to drive? I remember what it was like to learn how to drive. I have plenty of those stories myself. One of them looked kind of like this. I didn't, see, I didn't know anything at all about cars. I love my dad to death. And I'm always amazed at how, of all the things he taught me, and he taught me many things, there were so many things I left the house uh, knowing because of him, that I was grateful for because of him. But as I've gotten older, I've marveled at the way he managed to teach me something when I was a kid that didn't pop up into my brain until later in adulthood when I needed to remember it. I don't know how he did that, I'm grateful for it, but I have two grievances and one is, never taught me anything about cars. And when I say, I'm going to tell you this story, because you're going to think, oh, Matt must have had a base level. Matt does not have a base level of knowledge. If something happens to your car, I will gladly call someone to help you fix it. But I am not the person you want doing that. Here is why. Um, I'm sitting there. So Dad, he's going to take me up to help me to learn how to drive. And so we go to the parking lot at Leewood United Methodist Church, where my dad's been appointed for 12 years or so. We were excited. Leewood had a uh, parking lot. Uh, kind of like we do here at Southern Hills. I was so, in fact, when I first came to Southern Hills, this was the first church I'd been appointed to that had a parking lot. Most of the churches I'd been appointed to didn't. People just parked on the street. I was so excited, like ridiculously excited about the fact that we had a parking lot. Um, the, the parking lot at Leewood was kind of similar, except that it wrapped all the way around the church. And so he pulls me into the parking lot, right? We're going to get ready to drive. And he's got me kind of situated at the entrance, and there's this long, straight stretch of the parking lot, probably uh, about as long as from Penn Avenue out to the Boy Scout hut here on our campus. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm facing the back of the parking lot. He has me switch sides of the car with him, and I get into the driver's side, and he's like, all right, Matt, why don't you just take it up to about, this is my first time, right, first time driving. He's like, why don't you just take it up to about uh, 20 miles an hour, it's an old gray Jeep Cherokee. And then when we get to the end of the parking lot, we'll take a left and we'll turn around the building. I said, okay, sure. And so I, I get everything ready. You know, I'm really conscious, checking my seatbelt, checking my mirrors, checking all the things I'm supposed to check, put it in drive, start to take off. Wasn't even ready to begin tackling, um, learning how to drive a manual, which would come later in life. And so I'm, I put it in drive and I take off and I start driving and I, I can't get it to stay. I wanted to get it to 20, but I can't get the needle to stay to the right, at the right place. Every time I take my foot off, it goes down. And so I have to put my foot on the gas and hold it on the gas kind of steadily to keep the needle in the right place. And dad's like, Matt, I think you're going fast enough. And I'm like, dad, it's not, I'm not, I can't keep it right there at that two. And he's like, well, uh, I, think you're, I think you're going fast, Matt, I think you're going fast enough. And I, I'm getting close to the end of the parking lot and I'm going to keep it right there. And I don't know how fast I'm going. Finally, my dad is like, Matt, just pull off the gas. And he has me stop and stop the car. He's like, what are you doing? It's like, dad, I couldn't keep the needle in the right place. And he said, well, that's because you're looking at the tachometer and not the speedometer. I knew nothing about cars. My dad, um, when he was learning how to drive, he had two major mishaps. Um, one of them happened in a car. His dad said, now just remember, Randy, it's my dad's name, said, just remember, Randy, when you look in the rearview mirror, it's going to look like the person driving the car behind you is on the wrong side of the car. Be ready for that. Don't be scared. 
Dad knew this, looked in the rearview mirror, driving his dad's car, saw that, got really scared, promptly drove the car into a ditch because he was afraid. Second thing happened in a, a tractor. One day he was driving a tractor early on in his driving career and drew, drove right through the barn of the man who was employing him to work on his farm at the time whose wife my father would later marry. And so, or uh, excuse me, daughter my father would later marry and become his wife. Everybody has those stories. I'm sure you have plenty of those stories yourself. One of the great things about this movie is that it goes through some of the terrible and scary things that happen as he's teaching these kids how to drive, but he's doing it during the time that he had set aside to write the great American symphony. It's almost like at every turn, his goals end up taking a back seat to his responsibilities. Not all of those responsibilities are bad. Not all of our responsibilities are bad. I'm sure you've experienced a time in your life, maybe you're living through it now, where your goals have had to take a back seat to your responsibilities. In spite of the fact that you may love your responsibilities. But they prevent you from stepping into your goals. They prevent you from writing your symphony. He thinks he's going to have some time to start writing. And then uh, he and his wife have their first child. And they're in the process of raising their child. Raising a child, raising children takes way more time than you expect it to anyway. It's incredibly time consuming. It's a wonderful time consuming, but it's incredibly time consuming. But added to that, as, as their child is growing, when their child starts to get to the age where he should be doing things like saying his first words, they notice that he's not. He's not speaking at all. And then uh, the man who plays Richard Dreyfus, his wife is home with their child one day, and she notices that while she's trying to get his attention, he's, a, he's almost a toddler by this point, while she's trying to get his attention, he's facing away from her, and he's not reacting to any of the sounds that she's making at all, and she begins to wonder if he can't hear. And so, of course, they go to a doctor and they run some tests, and sure enough, 100% hearing loss, no hearing whatsoever, most likely, obviously, born that way. And so they end up enrolling him in a special school because for those of us who have disabilities, if you have a disability, then you already know, regardless of what that disability is, that the world we live in is not designed for people with disabilities. We try, obviously, to make accommodations, but those accommodations are accommodations in a lifestyle that is not designed for people who have disabilities. And so he goes to the school not just to learn sign language, but to learn how to navigate a world that is designed for people who can hear and he can't. Just like there are so many others who have to learn how to navigate a world that's designed for people who can see, but they can't. For people who can move in a way that we would consider to be normal movement, but they can't. So he's learning all of these things, and in the midst of that, there's so many accommodations that they end up uh, needing to make just to make it possible. I'm always amazed at the way that people with disabilities struggle and grow to be able to thrive in spite of the fact that they're thriving in a circumstance that's designed for someone else. They develop over time some bitterness which is probably common. By the time his son is a teenager, one of the things I love about this movie is that it kind of walks through the eras 
of his life, beginning in the 1960s and then moving on. He works with several students. I'll talk about that in a minute. But you get to watch him grow and his family grow and his students grow with him. And as his son grows into being a teenager, there's a bitterness. That's probably somewhat common, right? But there's a bitterness that develops between him and his son. And they, and they, they start to not get along. And as they start to uh, work into what it is that's keeping them from getting along with one another, one of the things that they realize is that from the son's perspective, he's upset because he thinks his father is disappointed in him because his father's great love is music and his son can't participate in that with him he's tried to over the years and his father had shooed him off at times when he was sitting at his piano trying to write things out and his son wanted to participate but couldn't so his father shooed him away and so from the son's perspective he discovers that he's he's upset with his father because his father's great love is music and he's not able to participate with his father in the thing that his father loves the most the father is upset because his great love is not music it's his son and his wife his family and his life and he was bitter that through circumstances beyond anyone's control, his son was prevented from enjoying the things that he took for granted. And so as they begin to reconcile, his son says, Dad, I'd love to just participate in your life in the ways that I, I can. I want to be a part of your life. I want to be a part of what's important to you. So his dad goes to his son's school. Love this part of the movie wants to put on a concert for his son's school, made up of people who are entirely 100% um, hearing loss, suffering from 100% hearing loss. They're, and he wants to put on a concert, knows obviously that they're, they're not going to be able to hear the music, but he wants to help his son and his son's friends to experience that. So he creates this entire light panel um, on the back of the, the stage, and he plays songs, plays music, different kinds of music, and that music is timed with different lights doing different things uh, so that everybody's present. It basically gets to experience a light show that's timed with the music that's being played, and his son is just beaming in the front row when his father gets up and sings a song to him, to his son, while signing in sign language at the start of the concert. He wanted to write a great American symphony. But at every turn, his goals take a back seat to his responsibilities. At every turn, he has to take that goal, put it on the back burner, on the back shelf, as he steps into having to, to take care of something that is very important and can't be put on the back burner or the back shelf because it's important. But because what he's doing, what, he, what he's living into, the way he's trying to show love and grow and learn and live into the lives of the people around him, he ends up not having the time or the resources or the bandwidth to, do, uh, to take care of his responsibilities and live into his goals, so his goals get shoved aside. Happens over and over again. You see that with student after student after student. There's one student who comes into his classroom. He's playing on the football team, and they decide that he's going to uh, be in the marching band. The, the main character, played by Richard Dreyfus, becomes best friends with the football coach. So this young man wants to play in the high school band. They're not sure where to put him in. So they put him on the drums, thinking anybody can do that. I have never been able, I've sat behind a drum set three times and never been able to make it sound anything like it does here on Sunday morning every week. 
He's sitting back there and he's trying to play the drums, but he cannot find the beat to save his life. If you don't believe that that's a thing, just listen to a bunch of Methodists who start clapping along with the beat in any song. We'll all start out together, but by the end of that song, we're not going to have any idea where we are or what we're singing. He can't find the beat. He wants to find the beat, can't find the beat, right? And so uh, Richard Dreyfuss, in the, in the role that he's playing, spends some extra time trying to help him learn to, to find the beat and stay on the beat. And he works with him after hours over and over trying one thing. And when that doesn't work, he tries another thing. And when that doesn't work, he tries another thing. But eventually, the kid gets it. Eventually, he figures it out. And he's so proud of himself, right? He's so excited. So it's an amazing thing to see that uh, the confidence within someone grow when they accomplish something that they didn't think they were going to be able to accomplish. He becomes incredibly confident and sure enough finds the beat. In fact, he goes on to serve honorably in the U.S. Army and later Richard Dreyfus and his friend, the football coach, will attend that young man's funeral when he comes back having died in the Vietnam War. There's a young woman who comes in and she comes from a family that has very much connected love with achievement. I feel like that's way too common. I feel like there are way too many of us who connect love and achievement. The more I achieve, the better I do, the, the more I can make someone proud of me, the more I will be loved. The problem is, while she has a family that's good at this, she's not. And the thing she's supposed to be focusing on trying to achieve in is playing music. Uh, I messed this up in the first service because I thought she played the saxophone. She didn't. She played the clarinet. Somebody um, helped to correct me about that. So she brings this clarinet in. My mother played the clarinet in the band that uh, she and my father were in together in high school. Dad played the saxophone. Mom played the clarinet. She's trying to play the clarinet, and she can't. She can't get it to do anything other than squeak. Like, the way she plays it, it sounds like it's a cat suffering horribly somewhere. She just can't make it sound like anything good, right? So she's trying to play the clarinet, can't do it, about ready to give up, and so he does the same thing. He thinks he's going to have time to write his symphony, but she needs some extra help, and she's, she's terribly beside herself, crying, upset, sad, because once again, she's going to be a failure. And once again, in her family, she's going to do worse than the other people in her family, which means she's going to be derided for that and not loved as much. And Richard Dreyfus sees this in her and decides once again to put his goals on the back burner for the sake of his responsibilities, because it's an important responsibility. So he gives her the extra time, the extra help, the extra training, the extra attention that's necessary to help her to learn how to play the clarinet. Something as simple as playing the clarinet, but she gets it. And the first time she makes it sound like something other than what it sounded like before, she's so excited. Story after story after story at every turn. While wanting to take time away to write his symphony, he ends up having to put that goal on the back burner for the sake of his responsibilities. Fast forward through several eras, the 1960s, the 1970s, and then they jumped to 1995. A time when after now having been a teacher of music for 30 years, because of a series of 
necessary budget cuts, the school board has decided to do away with the music program at his school. And so they've offered him a slightly early retirement so that they can cut the music budget entirely. And of course, he's upset about that. There's an underlying narrative there about the resources that we put into the arts and how important they are to the shared life that we live together. But there was another underlying narrative there about his struggle with his identity. Because you see, here's the thing. At the end of his career, he started this career as a fallback option because he wasn't able to make it as a musician. But he was still going to do it. He picked this career because it was somewhat within the purview of music, kind of what he liked to do, but it was also supposed to give him time to fulfill this lifelong goal of writing the symphony. He plugged away at it over the years, never completely finished it. Certainly wasn't where it was uh, either complete or where he was happy with it. But he'd never been able to just sit down and focus on it the way that he wanted to. No, instead of that, he had focused on the responsibilities that were a result of what he chose to do because he couldn't do what he wanted to do. So he fell back on something else and he devoted his life to it. He devoted his life to the people who were a part of that life together with him. And at the end of that 30-year period, now the program is in its entirety is being canceled. And for him, it was almost as if he was being told that his entire life and and his entire life's work didn't matter. I gave up, he would be thinking, who I was for the sake of this. And now who I became, in spite of what I gave up, has so little value that they just ended it. What does that say about me? His son is an adult by this point, but has come back for his father's last day. Everybody else has cleared out. His father's already said his goodbyes to the other teachers, his friends. So his son and his wife are there with him in his music room, packing up the last of his things. And as they're each carrying a box, the last box out to the car to load it up and leave, Richard Dreyfus hears something in the hallway. Everybody's supposed to be gone, so he looks at his wife and says, you, do you hear that? I feel like there's something going on. And she looks at her son, and her son smiles. She looks back at Richard Dreyfus and said, I don't know, let's go check it out. So they follow the noise, and it turns out that the noise is coming from the auditorium. And so they open the doors to the auditorium, carrying their boxes, and they walk in. And sure enough, the auditorium is full of people. Teachers, administrators, his you know, colleagues who work there, but also just chock full of other people. And as he, as he comes in, obviously they're having some kind of a rally or something, but as he, as he comes in... They all stand up and they all start clapping. Don't have to find a beat, so they do it fine. I'll start clapping, you know, cheering him on, and they guide him down front to the very front of the auditorium, sit him right in the front in the seat of honor. And as he gets there and he turns around trying to figure out what's going on, it dawns on him that the, the, the entirety of that auditorium is made up of former students of his, former music students, people that he'd known over the years who had grown up, moved on to other things. They're all in the auditorium, right? And it's dawning on him that this is happening as the door opens again and a woman walks down the aisle. She's got a, an entourage around her. And she walks up to the stage behind the podium. And she's introduced there as the governor. The governor is there. And when the camera pans to her, you realize immediately that she is 
the woman who was once the girl who learned to play the clarinet in his music room. And she goes on to say something that I think is incredibly profound. Let me paraphrase it. She said, Mr. Holland, you know, you had wanted for your entire life, she said, all of us in your class always heard you talk about how you were going to write the great American symphony. But you never had time to do it. You were always talking about it, always talking about how you were going to get to it, but you didn't. You never got there. Never had a chance to write it, never had a chance to hear it. She said, because every student, every adult who's here who was once one of your students knows how much of yourself you invested in us. Your time, your energy, your expertise, your caring, your commitment, your resources, you invested in each and every one of us. And because of that, she said, we are who we are today. You and what you did are a huge part of who we are today. She said, Mr. Holland, you may not have ever been able to finish your symphony. You may not have ever been able to fully write the symphony that you wanted to write, but the symphony that was written through you is far more beautiful than anything you could have ever come up with. So take a look around. Because the faces in this room are the notes in your symphony. Curtain opens and there's a band on stage, and they bring him up to conduct what he's written of a symphony. That's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy, and it's so common to let your goals take a back seat for the sake of your responsibilities. And so often, that's a good thing. It's an honorable thing. It's a noble thing, because so many of our responsibilities are good. But it's easy to go through life growing in regret, growing in bitterness. Because the symphony that you wanted to write, whatever that looks like for you, the symphony that you wanted to write with your life is always having to take a back seat to the life that you're living. It's easy at midlife or later in life to look back on the life that you've lived and realize that you haven't written the symphony that was so important to you to write. You haven't done the things that were so important to you to do, been the person that it was so important to you to be. And it's so easy to despair. Sometimes partway through life, we'll redouble in our commitment to be that person, do that thing, be in that place. We often call that a midlife crisis. Often late in life, we'll look back in despair that the thing we were supposed to do, we never did. The symphony we were supposed to write never got written. And yet, you know, it was once said, that life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Very often, the symphony that God is writing with your life 
turns out to be far more beautiful than the symphony that I had intended to write. Let me tell you, in closing, a few things about your symphony. Whatever that is, not the symphony you may have wanted to write. And you know, it may have been a good thing. That goal may have been a great thing. But the symphony that God is writing with your life is most likely a miraculous thing. few things about your symphony, whatever it is, the symphony that God is writing with your life. Your symphony is a light in somebody's darkness. And I mean that as a direct reference to the scripture. We're told that Christ came, that in the beginning was the word, and that, that word logos, it's pronounced logos, refers to Christ. In the beginning was Christ. Christ was with God. Christ was God. God came down in human form, even to um, sent in human form came to his own people group, his own ethnic group, his own religious and cultural group, and they didn't accept him. But there's more there. And that more sounds like this. There are those who came to testify to the light. The light was coming. There are those who came to teach it, and God came as light in the darkness, and yet we didn't see it. We didn't see the light in the darkness. I think it is so incredibly common to feel like you're walking around in darkness. The scriptures use that as a metaphor over and over and over again. Your symphony is a light in somebody else's darkness. And I mean that in the way that, in a, as a direct reference to the scriptures. Your symphony, what you're doing with your life, is speaking and bringing Christ into the life of someone else, into somebody else's darkness. The way that God is, who God is in and through you, is sharing the love and the light of Christ in the midst of somebody else's darkness. What does that mean? That what you're doing and who you are matters. Even if it's not what you thought you were going to do, what you thought you were supposed to do. What God is doing in and through you is mattering. You are a light in somebody's darkness. What you're doing, who you are, how you are, when you show and share and live the love of Christ in somebody else's life, you're sharing a light in the midst of their darkness that helps them understand a couple of things. One of them is that it helps them to understand the love of Christ for themselves experientially in a new way, in a different way, maybe in a better way, maybe in a more expanded way. You're helping them to experience the love of Christ in a way that they understand it for themselves. You're also helping them to see just a little bit better which way to go. Your symphony, whatever it is, is a light in somebody's darkness. Your symphony is also a ministry of multiplication. It's not a ministry of addition. It's a ministry of multiplication. That's what he experienced when he walked into that room and saw all of those people when he saw the governor of the state get up and it was a, a woman who had once been a girl who didn't believe she could do something, who thought that she was so deficient she wasn't even going to be able to learn to do something that she hadn't intended to spend the rest of her life doing but couldn't master it nonetheless, couldn't even make it sound decent. And yet he invested in her, was a light in the midst of her darkness, helping her to see the way a little bit better and in the midst of that to, to experience the love of Christ 
for herself in a new way, an expanded way, in a way that was going to continue to transform her, so that in part because of that lesson, not at all, but in part because of his symphony, she would go on to do the same thing and even a much larger scale with a much larger group of people to minister with and to as the governor of her state. And everybody in that room had the same experience. Your, ministry, your, your symphony is a ministry of multiplication. When you affect the life of someone by, by being a light in the midst of their darkness, by bringing the love of Christ into the midst of the darkness that they're in, when you are a part of somebody's life that way, that is multiplied as their life uh, continues to move toward what God is calling them to be. And they do the same thing in the lives of other people. Your symphony is a ministry of multiplication. Are you ever going to see it? Maybe not. Are you ever going to step into a room full of people? I wish you could. I wish we could all have that experience. Wouldn't that be cool? If you could step into a room full of people whose lives you had affected, who just are there to say thanks to you. Will that happen to you? Probably not. But from time to time, you're going to hear those stories of people whose lives you've changed. Your symphony is also unique. That's the last thing I want to tell you. Your symphony is unique. And it's intentionally unique. So stop comparing your symphony to people who are not writing it. There's no reason. Stop comparing your symphony. Stop comparing what you're doing or what God is doing in your life with people who are not living your life. It is a truth that you will not enjoy your life until you start to love the person who's living it the same way that God does. It is okay to look in the mirror and love the person who's looking back at you the way that God does because God does, warts and all. God loves you. But pastor, I could be a better person. So could I. Does God know that? Of course. We talked about that at the beginning of this. God also loves you as who you are, where you are. You are not going to enjoy life until you start loving the person who's living your life as much as God does. God loves you immeasurably. It is okay to look in the mirror and love the person that you see looking back at you. When you do, then it's also okay to give yourself the freedom to live into the symphony that God is writing in your life. And not compare the symphony that God is writing in your life to the symphony that God is writing in somebody else's life. You are not them, they are not you. You're not doing the same things in the same ways. And yet we're so prone to look at the lives of other people and compare ourselves to them. What they have that we don't have, what they've done that we, don't, we haven't done, who they know that we don't know. Your symphony is unique. And it's intentionally designed to be that way. Because when your symphony plays together with the symphonies of the people that you're now not comparing yourself to anymore, the end result is something that is far more beautiful than words can describe. Let God help you to stop and listen to the symphony that's your life. Your heart of hearing, let me use a different metaphor. Let God help you 
to stop and see the masterpiece that God is painting in your life. The masterpiece that God is writing in and with your life together with you. And don't wait. Certainly at the end of life, look back on the symphony that's been written, the masterpiece that's been painted, and enjoy that. Give thanks for it. Enjoy that masterpiece, the symphony that is your life, and the notes that have made it up, the colors that have made it up. Enjoy that. But don't wait till then. Stop where you are now. Let God help you to learn to open your ears and open your eyes to listen to that symphony, to see that masterpiece as where you are right now. Is it finished? No. Is there more to do? For sure. Does God love you where you are? Absolutely. And the more often you stop and listen to that symphony and stop and gaze upon that masterpiece, the more you're going to begin to love the person who is living your life in the same way God does, and you're going to begin to see that masterpiece that you're creating, that God's creating with you, the symphony that you're writing, as something that will be able to bring a light into somebody else's darkness as well. God loves you. the life that you've lived, the life that you're living together with God, it matters. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you for writing a symphony with our lives painting a masterpiece with the colors that make up each day. In a way that brings together a series of notes and a series of color to pull something together, to pull a masterpiece together, to pull a symphony together that's far beyond what I could have created, what we could have created, even if we'd had the time and the resources to do it. Help us, God, to be able to stop and listen to our own lives, to the notes that make up our lives. Help us to be able to stop and gaze upon the masterpiece that you've created with a tapestry of colors that we may not even have known existed. And to enjoy being a part of that experience together with you. So that the symphony that you're writing in our lives can be a symphony that not only we enjoy, but can be something that is a part of the light that you bring into the darkness of the world. Almighty God, we would ask as we prepare to celebrate Holy Communion together that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on those of us who are gathered here and on our gifts of bread and wine that you would make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ that is redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, God, make us one with Christ, one with each other and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet through your son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and your holy church. All honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. This is the body and the blood of Christ and it is broken and shed for you so that you may have life and that more abundantly so. So take and eat and drink and know that you are redeemed. Thank you so much for listening. We'll hope you'll join us again next week. 